Welcome once again to Cinemaholics, the major motion podcast where we talk about the biggest and the best films coming to theaters and streaming online. And one other thing we do is rank all the movies that we watched in a given year. Well, not all of them, but a bunch of them. From the San Francisco Bay Area, I'm John Negroni, film editor for InBetweenDrafts.com. And from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he's a news and entertainment writer at Collider, and he's the best person in the world at disagreeing with me on top 10 lists. It's Will Ashton. Hey, what's up? I'll tell you what's up, Will Ashton. It's okay. 2023. Yeah. And I'm ready for this year to get started, but it's not really going to get started mm. until we just we get this one thing out of the way sure. where we put a pin on 2022. And we're not even doing it for real, are we? Because we're going to be doing our Oscars episode coming up. It never ends. Sure. Yeah, it never, never ends. And I mean, we'll be talking about 2022 movies probably. Uh, the 2023 movies. Yeah. Or 2023 movies or 2021 movies or 2020 movies or 2019 movies. Whatever you want. Yeah. We're just talking about the movies all day, all all the time. If it's a movie, we're talking. Yeah. We're talking movies. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So we're going to talk about our top 10 movies of 2022. As usual, we got to start with how many movies did each of us watch in the given year? I actually don't have the final number on mine, but I have a rough estimate. Why? Uh, do you have yours, Will? You, you always ask me this question, and I never prepare for it. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't get it. I, I legitimately, it, it's kind of like putting on a glove, you know? It's like, ah, you know, yeah. even though it's like the winter season, I haven't worn the glove in a year, and I'm like, ah, it still fits. It's yeah. still Will Ashton forgetting that we usually talk about how many movies we see in a year. I mean, I could I, always go to your letterbox. Yeah, I was gonna say, the only one I really track is like how many movies, how many first time watches I watch in a year. Yes. That's the only thing I track. And that we'll just we'll say for now that you don't know. Yeah, well, I mean that doesn't count just the uh, 2022 movies. That counts all first time watches I had. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm, the big thing, yeah. So mm-hmm. the big thing for me this past year, I don't know if this is the case for you or not, but something that's changed for me, I think, since the pandemic, is that I've been trying to seek out more older films than to seek out new films. Uh, I feel like when things were shutting down and they weren't you know, movies regularly coming out on a given week outside of streaming. I, you know, found myself going back and checking out films I hadn't seen before, films I hadn't seen in a long time because they were playing at the drive-in or they, you know, I was just homebound and, you know, I had to watch something. So I feel like I've kind of kept that tradition going uh, in the years to follow. I mean, we're obviously still in the pandemic in some respects, but uh, yeah, I feel like I've been making a more concentrated effort to seek out older films than in years past. So to answer uh, your question part, I watched 267 films for the first time in 2022. Now, I don't know how many of those are 2022 films and how many of those are films from previous years, but that's the film. We at least have a number. We have some kind of window. Yeah. And that is less than previous years, I will say. I don't know that's why. That's less than first time 2021 watch. Like, that's fewer films than I watched in 2021 that were 2021 movies. Which, yeah, to know. be fair, I watched way more the last year than uh, I probably should have, honestly. I was going to say, I mean, I feel yeah. like, obviously, because of the pandemic in 2021 and 2022, I watched a lot more films than I do in a typical year. So, I mean, this is probably the less number of films I've watched since, I want to say, like, uh, 2018 or so. That's like what it sure. is for me. I think for me, it's like the least amount since t- more like 2017, 2016. So I, I only saw 136 movies. And I think there might be like five more I could add to that that I've seen since I put that list together. But I forget what they are. Uh, I did see everything that I know is in my top 10, really my top 25. Like I haven't seen anything recently from 2022 where I was like, oh, wow, this is like really, really good. 
Oh, I thought you were Not saying that much. I thought you were implying that you wanted to clarify that you've seen every film that you put in your top 10. Like, to be clear, I've seen all uh, 10. Hey, of these yeah, movies. I got to. Well, hey, got to be clear <laughs> about that, too. You know, some people some people just put stuff on lists and everything and they don't even watch the whole movie. Some people just, oh. you know, they log things on Letterboxd that they haven't watched the entire thing. They only watch like the first 10 minutes. Jonathan, like, that's not how Letterboxd works, actually. Jonathan, do you have some tea that you're trying to spill on the air right now? about critics uh, it's not tea it's just common knowledge isn't it it's common goss mm. that people do that on letterbox like you wow. can read reviews and people are like i don't even finish this i'm like well what are you doing well, like yeah. you then why are you logging this what do you what just Look comment on somebody else's review the end mr deep they're over here you know blowing the you know all this hot like information it's some, yeah. like it's some conspiracy or yeah. something I will say I, I genuinely uh, I've been the last couple weeks I have been winding down a lot on new movies like it, movies in general I haven't been watching a lot of movies at all I've been watching more shows hmm. um, the lot I haven't seen a movie since Megan right and so like I'm definitely not you know well in any sort of position like I've been taking a little bit of a break I'm chilling out I was gonna say I mean if I may say so 2022 was a big year for John Necroning. You know, he had some major life events that happened. That's true. Yeah, it wasn't like 2021 where I was like, I was, I was home a ton, ton. Uh, went on some big trips in 2022. I didn't do as many festivals. Got married. I obviously like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in a different stage of life now. I'm at this point where I'm making decisions on things to watch. Where and, and I said this on Twitter, I, I want to stop treating movie watching like a checklist. I feel like it's kind of steadily moved toward that over the last 10 years for me, where it just feels like I'm watching things because I feel obligated and because it's on a list somewhere and I'm just kind of like crossing things off. And I'm like, this is people's art. And I want to engage with it seriously. I don't want to just watch things flippantly and have a take when I haven't really put myself in the mindset to sit down with it. And I, I honestly, like I look at some of the reviews I've written in 2022 and some of them are big old stinkers. I won't name any names, but like I look back on some of those reviews. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't really sit down with those movies. I didn't really, because I was just trying to get to the next thing. And I know I've, I've kind of cheesed out about this with you about like, there are certain people that are on letterbox and I see them all the time. And I'm just like, they, they watch every single possible thing they can. It's just, it's binge, 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 watch, watch, watch. And it just, it feels endless and I, I just want to breathe. That's my my own little personal me decision. And I'm enjoying it. I'm having a good time. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't say I'm in that position in my life right now. I'm still just kind of watching any movie I can, more or less. But I will say, uh, for me, I feel like 2022 was a big year, movie-wise, for me to finally feel less of a need to watch everything in the sense of like, in years past, I would have seen a film like Morbius because it's a new film. It's a big film. And I feel like I have to see it. And, you know, thankfully, we didn't have to cover on the show and I didn't have any particular obligation to see it. Although so, I did see it like some kind of sucker. I'm not I'm glad you know, I saw it. I have no regrets. I'm, I'm not saying anyone's lesser than for seeing it. I'm just saying that, of course, uh, you know, I I personally would have probably seen it, if not in theaters, probably on streaming or, you know on DVD or something because I felt some obligation to watch it because it's a new film and it's a big film. And I have to watch it. And same with like the fantastic beast film or, you know, several other kind of notable films this year. And I feel like this is the first time in a long time where I felt some desire to be like, no, like I have no desire to see this film. I have no interest in this film. Why am I going to watch it? And I didn't. And I feel like that's a delayed reaction. Like I feel like most people have this 
earlier in life. So I, you know, I'm not saying this is a accomplishment or anything. It's just something that for me in 2022, it, it took me a long time to realize I don't need to see everything. I can just kind of see the things I want to see and I'll probably be happier for it. And I don't know if I'm happier, but I'm certainly in a better place because of it. I think having yeah. not seen Morbius. So, uh, there you go. I want to switch over to another topic that has to do with 2022, which is that the year in general. And, and how did it pair out? And there, there are two observations I made when putting my list together. One thing is that the highs were a lot higher, and I think the lows were a bit lower for me personally. Uh, some of the movies mm-hmm. in my bottom like five, bottom 10, I think were generally like, really, really bad movies compared to 2021, uh, even 2020. But honestly, like my top 25, any of these movies could have easily made their way into like the top 10 of last year. I think overall, this, mo- this year looked at 2021 and, and laughed in its face and was like 2021 you're a joke like we don't we don't care about you 2022 kicked ass it was such a good year in movies and i think part of that for me was i was able to go to the movie theater a lot more again um and casually too you know not just press screenings but I was able to go to like big event kind of movies and feel pretty safe doing it. And I was able to, you know, cover things that beyond just screeners, I was able to be a little bit more impetuous, which is nice. And also uh, some of, I'm looking at my top 10 and not a lot of Sundance movies. In fact, now that I'm really evaluating, not a single movie on, uh, on my top 10 this year is from Sundance, which has been kind of like 2020 and 2021 were dominated by Sundance movies for me because it felt like those were the only like really good movies that had managed to like send it kind of trickle in uh, compared to some of the other festivals. But this year, I mean, I have a few in like my top 15, top 20, but nothing in my top 10, which I'm I find kind of fascinating. It was a better award season. I think that's part of it. I think compared to the last two years, a lot of these movies are award season movies. In fact, most of them are. And I think there's a reason for that, because I think uh, the award season was actually like people really did save their really good stuff and feel like I think the studios felt comfortable. Like, okay, we actually are going to have like a a normal Oscars again. We're going to have like kind of a things are kind of reaching normalcy and we're producing things that the disruptions have kind of faded uh, into a, a different stage. It's less severe. So this is where we're at. I don't know if you would agree with that. I forget. I, I, this is another difference. I don't know what's in your top 10. You did send me your top 10. We were doing the top 10 for in between drafts. That's correct. And I factored those in, but I forgot yeah. what you included. I'm sure it'll come back to me as you're going through it, but I, this will be a fun kind of conversation because I, I chose not to look at it again. I want to be as surprised as possible. Yeah. So, I mean, I will agree with you on the award season part in that I feel like this is a more robust award season than years past. Like there are several categories that like, I feel like there are at least three or four legitimate contenders for some of the major categories. I don't really know who's going to win. It's actually kind of exciting because I feel like a lot of people are deserving and it could result in a very fun, hopefully slap free award ceremony later this year. (laughs) Um, but and I not, think this is going to be another. Uh, I think I'm going to miss the Oscars again this year. Oh uh, man, yeah, that's uh, right. You my, missed it last year. And yeah, you missed, this like, year I might be out of the country, so I might not wow. be able to see it. <laughs> yeah, so who knows what's going to happen this year? And you're not even going to see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like last year I did, I missed it for the first time in like a long time, and there was a big old slap. And then yeah. who knows? Maybe this year will be a little drop kick. I don't, I don't know. Someone could die. Who knows? I hope not. But um, yeah, I, I gotta really though disagree about 
I guess, the quality of films they saw this year. Not that in the sense of, like, there were several good films. Like, I'm not going to say otherwise. There are several films, like, I was just looking at my honorary list that I was putting together, and I certainly made it a lot bigger than years past, because I feel like last year I, I limited myself to, like, 15 films, and you went ahead and, like, dropped, like, 50. So I'm like, okay, fine. I'm just going to, like, list a bunch of films that I love from this year. And, like, yeah, looking at the list, several good movies came out this year, and I'm not going to say otherwise. But uh, if I look at this year's list... Compared to last year, or even, you know, some years past, like 2019, no contest, they're much better. Like, I would say the films in my top five last year would all trump the films that came at number one on my list this year. I find that so wild and and interesting. And I'm just, ah, what are some of those movies again? Remind me. So last year I had, uh, let's see, Licorice Pizza at number one, uh, All Light Everywhere at number two, uh, Red Rocket number three. Uh, worst person in the world number four and french dispatch number five and i would put all those above my number one pick this year and that's what I'm i saying, just like for mine those the three those three of those were in my top 10 as well i remember uh so red rocket of course was my number one and licorice pizza my number two and uh what was it uh not all light everywhere but what was the other one um uh worst person in the world Worst person in the world. Yeah, that was in, that was like my number seven, number eight. Yeah. I think all of those, but worst person would probably be in my top 10 this year. Maybe mm. worst person would be like number 10, actually. Yeah. So I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, last year I had some big, big, big old gems, but sure. I'd yeah. say my number one this year, I'd put higher than Red Rocket mm. and Licorice Pizza, but Licorice Pizza and Red Rocket would come next probably on my list. The other thing about this year for me is I feel like in years past, it's very easy for me to be like, this is the number one film of the year. Like, it's it's a pretty unanimous feeling in my soul. And I feel like this year, I kind of went like, that's the best film of the year, I guess. Like, not to discredit what I put in number one or even in my top five, because I think they're all pretty wonderful films. But I didn't feel like that immediacy that I previously felt in years past, where I watch a film and I'm like, that's the movie of the year. Uh, this year, I was kind of like, that was a film that felt the closest to that film for me this year. So I would definitely say this was a weaker year for cinema. And I know you disagree. I think you said this is the best year since like, I don't know, 2019. 2019. Yeah. Could be 2018 as well. Um, and, and I think it's better than 2019 in some respects, just mm. along the way of like 2019 was such a Disney year. That was Disney's big, like every movie I mean, they made, made was like a billions of dollars or whatever. 2019 and, yeah. had just banger after banger after banger. Like, I don't know what you're like talking box about. box office wise. No, like quality wise. I mean, like, quality wise Jones, too. I mean, yeah, Midsommar, I loved like, plenty of films yeah. in 2019. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just like it's just, it was a pretty amazing year. And I think 2020 had some really solid films, too. I feel like it gets underrated sure. because it was a pandemic year. And certainly there were less films that came out. But there were a lot of wonderful indie films that came out that year uh, that I feel like should be celebrated. And there were a lot, a lot of wonderful movies that came out this year, too, to be clear. I yeah. just feel like compared to other years, I feel less enthused than I normally do. Part of it for me, honestly, is that this was the year where most of my favorite movies I got to watch in a theater. I think in 2021, I didn't as much. Like, I did see a bunch of them in theaters, to be clear. But this year, like, it just seems like there are it's it's like the exception if it's because I saw something on a screener, right? And even movies where I think you'll you'll kind of balk at me watching the screener version instead of uh, going to the theater to see it, right? But uh, we made we all make our choices. Yeah. No, I get uh, it. And yeah. you were being safe, and I think that was probably for the best. And I think you just kind of had for convenience, reaction. and it, it, it's safety, but it's it's also convenience. It's also just like financially, like sure. I'm in a part of my life where I, I can't just like spend like spend money like that. Like it costs money to get to the theater. Like San Francisco oh, yeah. is not a cheap place. And oh, I know you that. Know, 
Yeah. yeah, yeah, you got to hang out here, so you know, and like, yeah, yeah. it's 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 not you know fun uh, trying yeah. to get around, and like, if if there was a chance for me to save a little bit of cash, you know, for something where it wasn't like a must see event, like, and I could like actually be at home and see the screen, or even in some cases before I would have a chance to go to the screening, I, I took it. Sure, but I just say what I meant to say was. Like, looking at those films I listed in my top five last year, four of those five films I got to see in theaters. And I kind of had that, like, renewed, like, okay, this is what it feels like that. to fall in love with a movie in a movie theater again. So I had that experience, but I had it last year. And not to say I didn't have it this year, but, like, I feel like it was more sort of uh, uh, joyous, I guess, last year because it, it felt like a return to something I love very much. Mm. To me, I felt like I had some I had some great theater experiences this past year, like so many great experiences. I'm excited to talk about them now. So let's start with uh, our list. As usual, we're going to talk uh, one by one. It's going to be our number 10, number nine, number eight, and so on. And then right before we do our number ones, we'll go through honorary mentions and with our number ones, and then we'll call it. I don't know if we're going to, you know, talk about what we thought were like our least favorite movies. Maybe we have time. Uh, I, You know, it's not that interesting, I guess. Yeah, I was going to say, do we want to mention the ones that we really wanted to see but didn't get a chance to see? I didn't make a list of those. I feel like I got to see basically everything that I was really, really wanting to see. The mm. only thing that's still on my list that I'm like, they're actually a couple, I, but I'm like mildly interested. I'm like, I'm going to get to them. Movies like St. Omer, uh, The Eternal Daughter, All the Beauty and, uh, and Bloodshed, and Triangle of Sadness. Like, I'm going to get to them. The, I, I uh, Close, The Inspection. Like, there's a bunch. And none of them, though, that I'm just like, I got to see this. Like, this is, I feel like they're going to really turn the tide or anything. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's going to happen. Who knows? But okay. uh, did, did you have any you want to list? Oh, sure. Yeah. I, there's always films in any given year that I just don't get a chance to see for a number of reasons. Uh, and you've listed two of them already. Uh, Return to Soul and The Eternal Daughter. Uh, or, oh, sorry. I didn't say Return to oh, Soul. Sorry, sorry. Uh, I jumped ahead. I meant to say St. Omir, <laughs> but I was looking at my list and I had Return to Soul first. So uh, okay, okay. he said, so let me rephrase yeah so the films on my list were return to soul say no mirror no bears hit the road the eternal daughter one fine morning marina three minutes a lengthening un couple confess flesh a film i did not expect to put on this list uh even four months <laughs> I before i do want to see confess flesh that'd be I, I think it could be fun to see it but i saw it on like at least like three or four best of the year list i'm like man i gotta i guess watch this movie i guess but i never got around to it so unfortunately yeah. i didn't get a chance uh stars at noon broker Blonde, uh, a pick that I'm sure you're not happy with, but whatever. Uh, the Cathedral. But Broker, yes. I, I do, I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to see Broker. Sure. And me too. And I almost had a chance to see it today, but did not, unfortunately. But I hope to mm. see it sometime next week. The Cathedral, Argentina 1985, White Noise. Oh, yeah, that one too. Yeah, I got to see Argentina 1985. Yeah. Which uh, might get nominated for international feature. It, I don't know. It has some momentum. Yeah, yeah. I got the Critics' Choice Award. Yeah, in any case, uh, White Noise, Clay Dream, Pacification, Langui, The Sacred Bonds, El Boco, Ka uh, yeah, Cal, The Wonder, Terrifier 2, a film I've seen, uh, again, kind of similar to Confessed Flesh, a more list than I anticipated. Yeah, uh, I'm surprised you have it on there. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, but Uno, uh, Unio, Great Freedom, and Lynch-Oz. Those are some cool. of the more notable films that i really wanted to watch either they didn't play in my area or i just didn't get a chance to check them out for a number of reasons so uh yeah if they're not on my list and you know i catch them later down the line i'm like man that should be on my list that's why yeah and uh yeah i'll just say you know i <clears throat> bardo was the other one uh, oh i watched I, bardo yeah you saw it i i haven't seen it yet but i'm i certainly want to uh, at, at a certain point because well, i'm very curious about it and yeah all that 
I will say, I mean, I didn't, I didn't feel as passionately one way or the other as some folks did, but it is not on my list. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm getting that out of the yeah. way. But okay. Uh, let's get into it then. Our number 10s. We'll start with you, Elashian. What is your number 10 movie of 2022? So my number 10 pick is a film that uh, I feel like you and I weren't exactly on the same page on, at least when it came out. And I feel like we've kind of had some like light disagreements about it. And I'm not really sure the reason why you're not too fond of it, but I- I'm definitely curious to hear your thoughts as well. It is Terrence Davies' Benediction. Uh, it's a mm. film that, yeah, I mean... I li- Benediction, okay. that's... What are you talking about? That's my number 17 of the year. Okay, yeah, I know later on you put this in your list, and it confuses me because I remember, not, it doesn't confuse me because it's the quality, obviously, it's in my top 10, but uh, I feel like when this movie came out, you were kind of like, eh, whatever about it, and I saw it, and I was like very moved by it, and you were like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) Whatever, nerd. Uh, Hold on. While you do your thing, I'm going to see what I said about this movie. In any case, yeah. So, uh, yes, this film, uh, it's like, Kind of a uh, well, it's basically a biopic on uh, Siegfried Sassoon, uh, who is a 20th century war poet uh, who is able to kind of enrapture the nation with these very soulful, eloquent depictions of the war uh, and give people a lot of inspiration, feel seen by a lot of people who are struggling with post, you know, uh, PTSD and transitioning back into civilization during the war but during this whole time he was uh, a closet homosexual or actually rather uh he was just not openly a sexual uh, homosexual and throughout the film you kind of see him battling with the contradiction between being a voice of a generation being a voice of a nation during this difficult transition period but unable to really fully be himself in it's accepting an open society and it's a film that like uh the subject itself it's very melancholic but very poetic and beautiful and heartbreaking uh anchored by some really tremendously performances uh by jack loden and also later in the film uh oh what's his name oh peter capaldi uh, giving two uh, very moving, beautiful performances. It's a film that it, it's almost a little hard for me to really uh, detail exactly why it moves me as much as it does, uh, which is, I guess, kind of ironic given the the very literary quality of the film. But I just feel like it, it tackles the subject in a way that feels very attuned to his legacy, the reason why he's become such a pivotal figure at this time and place, but also recognizing the timeliness and the necessity for his story and why it is such a meaningful and ultimately heartbreaking story to tell. And yeah, it, it's a film that I, the more I think about, the more I really grow to resonate and love it. So that's my number 10 pick, Benediction. Okay. I looked I threw our, our chat history. Will, I didn't say anything negative about Benediction. Nothing. No, you, had, I guess like I said something on the podcast that you took as like. Uh, you're gaslighting me right now. I know it. I looked through it. Like the literally the only thing is like I, I told you the moral of it and which was just a little joke. Mm-hmm. And then that's it. I didn't say anything else. No, I remember you were like because you watched this one as a screener and you said you were kind of struggling yeah. to get through it. Not because of the movie. I think it was because I was having issues. Okay, mm. here we go. All right, fine. It was, a mis- I'm sorry. it was a classic misunderstanding. I'm sorry if I misspoke on your behalf. I didn't mean I, to. I'm sorry if I gave the wrong impression. I don't know what I did. I, I liked the movie quite a bit. I thought it yeah, was I, really well done. And Yeah, yeah I, I found it to be tremendously affecting. And I saw it the same day I saw Lightyear. 
like literally within like 30 minutes of them. And I you saw could in our not, chat history that you, you literally were like, Hey, I'm going to watch Benediction. I was like, I'm about to watch Lightyear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what a double talk, feature. Talk about like night and day as far as like Benediction having like a moving semi cathartic experience and then seeing Lightyear, a film that I feel like I felt nothing throughout the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Same here. Uh, oh, man. One of the bigger tough disappointments of uh, the year. Tough year for Pixar generally, um, uh, and Disney yeah. in general. I mean, uh, Turning Red, good movie. But I mean, Turning Red, a good movie that got buried, that sure. didn't even get to go to theaters and oh, okay. was like, I, I think wrongfully slighted by like a huge community of like people who don't know anything about media analysis, pretending like it was some kind of, yeah. I, yeah. I think the whole Turning Red thing is just sad okay. um, considering how good that movie was. But I was you just know. talking quality wise, but yeah, I, I get what, you, what you're saying as far as the, the release of it is obviously very messed up. Right. Yet, yet, if only they had switched it, you know, Lightyear getting the Disney Plus release in March, Turning Red getting that summer release. They, man, if Turning Red had been playing in the summer, who knows? Who knows what could have happened? Yeah. But all right, my number 10 movie is Happening. And uh, this is the Audrey Dewan movie. And this is the one that takes place in 1960s France and uh, at a time when abortion was still illegal in France. And wow, is this a tough watch because uh, you're, you're watching a young woman kind of navigate. Uh, and, and this, by the way, is a Sundance movie uh, now that I think about it. But it's a movie that I didn't watch at Sundance. So I forgot about that. <laughs> so technically, there is a Sundance movie in my top 10. I misspoke earlier. But yeah, so this this did premiere at Sundance, I, I believe premiere. And I just I remember getting gutted while watching this, like while watching this this college student who has her future ahead of her navigating this this really chilling atmosphere of like something that's going on in the US today, right? Like sixty years later, and just this thing that was taken away from people, like around the time when this movie was hitting release was when Roe v. Wade got pulled. And so it was definitely a, a tough experience, but I think a really uh, necessary one because I think it was just, as a movie, it was, I, I can't say cathartic because it's not cathartic, it's enraging, if anything else. But it's so well done in the details and it's so prophetic that I think it's just one of those social commentary movies that really just nails everything about what it's trying to say about the two genders and how men and women interact with each other. And obviously it doesn't get into other things outside of like the binary, sure. But in terms of the conversation it is having about how women see men, how men see women, uh, the agency that women have when it comes to what they're able to do with healthcare and with uh, these sort of things, even in a European country that is considered by many to be more progressive, right? Like France, you don't really think of France as a place where abortion is illegal, but it was in this time period. And I, I just think it's one of those movies that I, I definitely puts a stamp on this year in a very unique way. And I certainly got a lot out of it watching this movie unfold the way it did. So that's my number 10 uh, happening. And I believe you saw it as well, right? Yes, I did. And it's in my honorable mentions. Uh, it'd probably be in my like, my top 30 for the year. Uh, I thought it was quite good. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, quite good. And I definitely agree with your sentiments. Okay. What's your number nine? So my number nine film is a movie I feel like everyone has kind of neglected in the great Andrew Dominique conversation that's been going on this year because everyone's been kind of caught up in the blonde discourse. Again, a film I have not seen yet. Uh, and I feel like, you know, his credentials could kind of been put in the question, all that stuff. Uh, if that's the case, I would definitely recommend his other film from 2022, which is This Much I Know to Be True. His uh, second documentary centered around Nick Cave, in this case, 
the collaborative process that went into making uh, his last two studio albums, Ghost Teen and Carnage, with Warren Ellis, his regular collaborator. Uh, this film, it serves as uh, sort of a companion piece to the previous film that they made together, uh, in that that film, given the loss that uh, Nick Cave unfortunately uh, faced during the time and how that uh, colored or didn't color the uh, um, mood and tone of that film and how he was dealing with the grief and loss of his son, how he was putting that into uh, an album that would express that creatively. Here is a film where uh, people are trying to kind of break out of the shell that came through the pandemic, coming out of loss, out of grief, and finding kind of jubilation in making art again, finding that creative spark, finding that joy and being in a community making stuff again and also just kind of like finding that spark that really comes with making great art together. And it's a film that I can see, you know, it doesn't quite have the same emotional poignancy that I think his, the previous uh, documentary that they made had, but I feel like for me, it, it kind of resonated a little bit longer because of the case personal history and knowing because this is the only film um, from this list that I actually got a chance to watch twice. The first time I watched it, I saw it at the beginning of the virtual South by Southwest film festival. And then the second time I got the chance to see it on the big screen. And that was after Nick Cave unfortunately lost another son. And it was, you know, the first time I had seen it, it was like, you know, it felt so rejuvenating and uh, joyous to like see Nick Cave coming off of this, you know, personal tragedy and learning to rebuild and learning to move forward in, in such a beneficial and uh, joyous way. But then knowing now like what had happened, it becomes sort of a bittersweet experience. Like it captures this point in time where he was able to really kind of find that happiness in his work again and, and really have a lot of humor and heart and uh, collaboration in such a, uh, a meaningful but what might be fairly short-lived way. And uh, yeah, it's just a, a really engaging well-filmed documentary and it's certainly among my favorites of the year that's why i put it number nine on this year list i will say i have not seen the movie one of the reasons i avoided it honestly is because i am not that into nick cave i I haven't really listened to a lot of uh the music from him or nick cave and the bad seeds so and i had heard that this documentary was really something that uh it's tough to get a lot out of it if you're not a big fan of his work already so that's the reason i kind of stayed away but uh, I'm happy that you enjoyed it so much because it it does seem like a, definitely one of those one of those documentaries that I would be into otherwise. So yeah. Um, yeah, I forgot to mention one more time with feeling is the other documentary that Andrew Dominique and Nick Cave made together. All right. Well, that is this much I know to be true. Well, Ashton, that was your number nine. My number nine is All Quiet on the Western Front, which is I think the last. It's the movie on my top ten that I saw most recently uh, because I saw it literally like right before the year ended. So I think like right before New Year and All Quiet on the Western Front is kind of this really loose adaptation of the uh, very old book that is based on like World War One. And this movie really just kind of, it uses the book as a bit more of a launch pad, but it's its own kind of story. So in case people were like, well, there's already like three All Quiet on the Western Front movies, you know, Uh, there's one in the the 1931, I think is considered by most to be the best, but uh, this movie is certainly its own thing. And it is a foreign language film, uh, to be clear, an international film. It is German, and it's from the perspective of the uh, German army during World War One. So the really the characters who we, we don't normally see the perspective of the Germans 
when we watch movies like this, where we're following like a young soldier uh, throughout the majority of the film and what they're experiencing uh, via like the horrors of war. And in this movie, we, we see German young German soldiers going up against French soldiers in trench warfare, and it paints that warfare in the most brutal, horrific ways possible in order to be as realistic as possible to what went down here. There was a movie that came out years ago, a couple, a documentary called They Will Not Grow Old, which I infamously was pretty negative on because I just found it to be a little bit like uh, Trickly and how it was handling the material. This movie, I think, is the opposite of that, where I think it is getting into the heart of why this was such a tragic war, what it was like for these people whose entire lives were being judged by the whims of the just absolutely uh, maniacal sociopathic generals who, you know, you kind of see like what they're thinking and what's going on with them. And it's, it's obvious, it's the obvious things, it's pride, it's ego and all of that. But I, I generally found a, a Felix camera, the main guy in this to be just a haunting presence. This to me felt like what uh, a Ter- if like a Terrence Malick film was actually like edited in a coherent way. That's kind of what this movie is. And I say that only to make Mulashin upset. Yeah, I was just going to say, are you making this accusation just to really <laughs> peeve me off? Yeah, basically, basically. Uh, th- this is uh, Edward Berger, who directed the film. Uh, most familiar face in it is probably going to be Daniel Bruhl, depending on where you're from, but uh, who also is just tremendous in this. And I... It, it reminds me of watching Saving Private Ryan for the first time when we see the troops storm the beach of Normandy and you're like, wait, what? Like, this isn't the kind of war you typically see in movies. Like, compare this back to back with something like 1917, a movie that I really, really enjoyed that I thought was really good. Also a very flashy, blockbustery kind of movie compared to this, which is just like no bones about it. What you're watching, you're getting into it. You're in the trenches with these people. The dirt's on your face. The blood is everywhere. And it does it in a way where it's not emphasizing the gore necessarily like some of the most unsettling scenes have nothing to do with people bleeding or getting hurt or dying it's people huddling around like so cold they have to put their hands down their pockets and they're kind of like losing parts of their mind in the process it's, it's stuff like that where and by their pockets sorry put their hand down their underwear in like these freezing conditions not their pockets but yeah all quiet on the western front uh, truly like a surprise because i i Saw this movie coming, but I had no idea that, like, this is Netflix, right? And I just did not expect a movie of this, like, production value, of this caliber, uh, really taking on this material in a unique way, uh, the way it did. Uh, I'm so glad that I saw it when I did, because uh, it has a nice place here as my number nine of the year. I did see this film. Uh, I don't know how much I want to get into it, uh, because you tease about potentially doing an episode or a review on it. Uh, I will say... Uh, and maybe it's on my place to say this because I have not read the book, but I know I've seen the 1930s film and I'm familiar with some previous adaptations of the film. I think this movie works better as a film than it does as an adaptation of the book. Uh, That's kind of what I meant in the beginning. It's like you kind of have to separate it from what's come before. I guess, but I feel like I don't get as much out of this movie that I haven't seen from previous war films. I, I feel like the book is a lot better from what I can gather about tackling the alienation of war, you know, like the, the dangers of, you know, blind patriotism, things that like, I feel like the movie tackles, but in very sort of blunt and violent way that I feel like it, it communicates that in a way that I feel like, you know, maybe other movies from world war one haven't really talked about this. I mean, certainly a lot of films from world war two have, um, that's kind of part of it. Sure. But yeah, I mean, we've gotten trench warfare movies, but 
I think that's kind of the point that that blunt and violent way is kind of what makes it work, at least by my estimation. Yeah, I just I guess I just don't really see what about the film as far as the changes made really benefit think, the material or the film in question. I think the changes made come down to and, and we don't have time really to do a whole review of it. But I really think it comes down to how the soldiers who know each other interact with each other. I think that's the secret weapon of this movie and what kind of elevates it beyond a lot of the war films we've seen before. I think a lot of the war films we've seen before are emotionally manipulative, not in a bad way, not that that's a bad thing, but they tend to set up like characters who knew each other, who do, who have this kind of like kindred thing. And they set it up just to knock it down. I think the way that this movie movie does it flows and is organic and is actually like really more immersive overall. And I just think it's a cut above a lot of the films you've seen before in this respect. Just my, just my impression. And, uh, we can obviously disagree on that. I just, uh, I was really taken by it. I mean, you know, solid film. Like I'm not going to say it's a bad film or anything. It's, it's worth watching. There's a decent chance going to get nominated for best picture. I can see why I guess I guess I don't really see that uh, rich humanity in the film that you're really seeing. And that's fine. You know, to each their own. You're just too anti-German, which, you know, uh, anti-German. I'm mostly German. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. You're so self-hating. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Whatever. Yeah. I mean, well, then maybe that's cutting into a little bit. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you like the film as, that, as much as you do. And, right. you know, I like it fine. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, I don't really see why it should be on a top 10 list, but you know, that's your list and it's not mine. I'm sure. Yeah. There's, there's stuff you're going to list here in a minute where I'm just going to be like, "Mm -mm -mm." but uh, let's, let's see what happens. Uh, Let's hope for the best. What is your number eight film of the year? Will? sorry, I'm on mute. Uh, My number eight film is another film that I feel like I liked a little bit more than most, maybe even you, but nevertheless, it's a film that I really loved when I saw in theaters and I feel it's still kind of stuck with me in a key way. And it's probably the only major blockbuster that's on my list so far as I can recall. And that is uh, Jurassic world dominion. <laughs> yeah, man. If, what if I put that on there? <laughs> uh, no, it's Robert Eggers, the Northman, uh, his third film. And I mean, I've heard people say it's, you know, it's his weakest of the three. Uh, I mean, I, I can't say it's, I would say you know, that. uh, I can't say it is, uh, on par with the lighthouse, the film that I love. And I think still remains his best film. Uh, but as far as, uh, you know, historical epics go, I think this one is a cut above the rest. You know, I, I think it's anchored by some really dedicated, committed performances. I think the photography in this is gorgeous. And I love the way the movie interweaves the, the gritty and the grime with the supernatural and the mythical and the way that, uh, legends kind of are built and passed through time and generation and how people feel this compelled need to like live up to some sort of fate that may or may not really be their true destiny and how uh you know our lives are kind of dictated by the people that may not have our best interests at heart and uh i think it's just a really engaging well-made piece of blockbuster entertainment but i also think it's a lot more thoughtful a lot more engaging than uh some other films like that a lot more willing to be weird and goofy at the same time but also not undermine the the story and the character and the the intensity of their emotions and the the grandness and the uh, theatricality of what they're going for as far as the cinematic quality of the film and yeah i just found it to be some of the most exhilarating cinema i saw in this year 2022 so I'm going to put it on my list at number eight. All right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a bit further down the list for me. It's my number 35 of the year. 
And but it's next to some films that I really like. It's it's right below Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, and The Menu and The Fablemans, and it's above movies like Mad God and The Pale Blue Eye and The Pink Cloud. So you know all movies that I, I am quite fond of. So, uh, but I, I am a little bit more of like I I, I think Lighthouse and The Witch are uh, more successful movies for me. I, I like those ones a bit more, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a great time watching The Northman. I, how could you not? I, I just think that that was a role that, my goodness, uh, <laughs> Alexander Skarsgård just kind of like cruising through, doing his thing, mm-hmm. like in that in that opening, not the opening of the movie, but when he's like pillaging the village yeah. and like, what a scene. I, it just really stuck with me. And there's some shots in the movie that was that sure. genuinely like horrifying that I yeah. was, uh, I found amazing. And I just love that like for as much as cinema on a scale like this, uh, like a hundred million dollar production has grown fairly monotonous and, you know, lacking really any singular vision or particular lens through which you can tell an artist made it. This is 100% a Robert Eggers film. It's a little compromise in some respects. Sure. But I kind of expect that for a film like this. And I still feel like he still got to make the movie he wanted to make. And I'm sure his Nosferatu movie is going to also be exceptional. I'm really excited to see it. Uh, yeah, I just had a really great time with this and I just continue to be, really keyed into what Robert Eggers is doing as a director. And so I hope that continues into the future. Speaking of movies that do a lot with budgets that are relatively managed, (laughs) considering what's on the screen, my number eight film is Everything Everywhere All at Once from the Daniels, Daniel Scheinert and Daniel Kwan. Truly, I think one of the one of the real front winners, front runners for winning best picture this year. Certainly uh, a, a critic's choice favorite. I mean, critics love this movie. I think audiences really love this movie. It's one of the big box office successes of the, the year, considering its originality and what it was able to accomplish. And one of the things I've noticed about this movie, because we obviously reviewed it, we talked a lot about it. The, th- the things I love about it, I've, I've gone to length about. I, I just think that, first of all, this is a uh, a theater, the first theatrical experience I get to talk about on my list because All Quiet and Happening were movies I saw on screeners. But this movie I did see in a theater. I saw it with a group of people, and it, I it just it was one of those things where it, it experiencing it on the big screen was such a like unmissable thing. Like I'm so glad that I got to see it in that environment because that is such a part of experiencing the unpredictability of this movie with other people, you know, especially when it was just coming out too. And we didn't really know what to expect. I didn't know anything about this movie. didn't watch a trailer. And I was genuinely just gobsmacked by what were they were able to do here, the choreography, the fight scenes, the emotion undercutting it. And I remember as the year went on, the the kind of the haters, you know, kind of came out and we're just sort of like, this movie is actually bad, but you don't even know it. Ha ha. And then we've kind of gone like wave after wave with this movie of like, is it actually really good? Was it overhyped? And all that's just noise to me. All I know is that when I watched this movie, I had a genuine emotional moment uh, with what it was trying to say, how it was saying it, and just how much fun it had telling an emotional good time. I like to think of it as like the, uh, I don't even, is it R rated by the way? Do you know? I think it's. I think it's probably. I think it's R. R. Yeah. Given all the it's dildos like, and the stuff that's in the film, I feel like it has to be R, right? Yeah. Sure. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, yeah. I just don't remember if like they had any like f bombs or anything. But anyway, it's it's kind of like an R rated live action Pixar movie in some ways to me, uh, just in terms of like how innovative it is and what it's doing and and how it's doing it. So, yeah, that's my number eight movie. It's uh, it's pretty terrific. Yeah, I would have to agree. And you know, I don't want to spoil anything. But uh, I think I'm going to be talking about this movie in a little bit. When am I going to be talking about it? 
I don't is it know. in your honorable mentions? Is it? Well, who knows? Uh, I guess we'll have to let the no, listeners. No, if it was in my honorable mentions, I would have. <laughs> yeah, you probably you know, just, just said, yeah. "Hey, it's in my honorable mentions. So I'll talk about it later." But uh, no, it, it's on my list. I'll say that. But I won't say where. I won't say when <laughs> okay. I'll talk about. It. Well, what is your number seven movie? Is it Everything Everywhere? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's not uh, everywhere. Everything everywhere all at once. It is uh, a film that I'm sure we're going to be talking about a little bit more in depth as well though uh on your end but it's a film that uh i can't say it surprised me but definitely uh re-sparked my love for the writer director uh in this case uh oh what is that guy's name <laughs> oh my goodness um martin mcdowell uh, oh. it's a banshee's van sheeran i had to make sure i wasn't gonna say his brother's name because they're both filmmakers <laughs> um but yeah so this is uh yeah the reunion, the in Bruges reunion between the writer director and obviously the stars, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, uh, you know, a very character focused dark comedy period piece centered around two blokes who uh, have a, a difference of worldview that kind of sparks this uh, epic feud that happens to parallel with the War of Ireland. And it's another film that kind of similar, I guess, in some respects to The Northman kind of blends Realism and fabulism, kind of mythos and tragedy in a way that, uh, in this case, it feels a lot more funny, a lot more sort of, uh, you know, low stakes in the scheme of things, though no less personal and no less uh, dramatic. Uh, and I, I can tell that the type of film, just based on our previous conversation, that I feel like everyone who comes out of it has a sort of different reaction. I know like you felt it was more comedic. I felt it was a little bit more tragic. By the end of the story, what I love about this film is that not only can it be really funny and really sad or any number of things for any number of people, but it just really communicates a lot through that simplicity, but that deep felt emotionality about the state of things. Now, it can be timeless in that era, but also feels very present to the time that's telling, both in the sense of its time period and when it came out. Uh, but also is just anchored by another pair of wonderful performances by Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell, uh, two actors who obviously have proven themselves many times before, but especially in the case of Colin Farrell, I feel like has only continued to get better as an actor. Uh, it's someone who is only continuing to show his versatility and his, uh, his ability to kind of play a number of different characters in very deep felt and, uh, you know, heart wrenching ways. But, uh, yeah, I feel, I feel like this movie, uh, in many respects kind of hit me deep in a personal way. Like I feel like the, what the film is saying about creativity, about legacy, about what it means to kind of be present in the moment. Can you really make great art if you're not really living in the time? Can you also really truly be a great artist if you don't live to live a legacy are things I feel a lot of people can relate with no matter if they have cut their fingers off or not. And, uh, yeah, I just, uh, Really connected with it. I, I really found it engaging and sweet and ultimately heartbreaking, as I mentioned. But I am definitely glad I got to experience it. And I definitely am glad that I got to renew my fandom for Martin McDonough because I was uh, less enthused with uh, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. And I was a little worried that he had kind of lost that mojo that I really loved from In Bruges. And uh, thankfully, he's brought it back and then some with what may very well be his best film. So that's my number uh, was it seven? Number seven. Pick. That's number seven. Yeah. So your number seven, Banshees of Vinnie Sheeran. My number seven is Nope, the third film from Jordan Peele. 
And, uh, you know, this, this movie is all about bad miracles. I think this movie is a good miracle. <laughs> and I kind of mentioned earlier, uh, the Fablemans is not on my list, but, uh, Spielberg is certainly the, one of the filmmakers I was thinking of the most while watching this movie, because there, there are so many like moments in this movie that not that they're Spielbergian necessarily, but I think this is the movie that I, that really brings Jordan Peele to the next level as a filmmaker, uh, tackling not just this this kind of horror social niche that he has really like just nailed down to a science with movies like Get Out and Us. With Nope, I think that he is starting to break out of that even more and starting to still use horror. Like this movie has, uh, it's a monster movie. It's It's got horror to it and then some, but it, it's a movie that also is like tapping into some of the things that I think the best filmmakers do. And that is finding the emotion behind the spectacle and finding the way that you can really bring an audience together through what they're seeing on the screen. This is just one of those movies where the entire time I'm watching it, I'm, you know, every emotion I'm experiencing and every emotion is effective. And it's a movie that still haunts me in terms of like just the sound design of it, because like every element of this movie, I think is technically brilliant in terms of just, you know, there will be a scene where the, the, something is happening where it's echoing the idea of like a theme park ride. And you just get the sense that like Jordan Peele is just, he's just having fun at this point. And I think it's thrilling to watch a filmmaker at the top of his game, having fun, making something this good, uh, in my, um, in my sort of like joke, uh, review of this on Letterbox, I said that it's uh, a Western theme park ride elevated horror blockbuster, <laughs> and I stand by it. I think that it's like absolutely that kind of movie, and I, I it, it was for me. I think like uh, I'll double check my list, I guess, but it, to me, this was like the big summer movie. Uh, I know Top Gun Maverick, a movie that I also really, really enjoyed. Great theatrical experience. It's my number 21 of the year. And uh, for sure, I, I understand why for a lot of people it's in their top 10s. And they're like, this was the big summer movie, their favorite summer movie. I think my favorite my favorite summer movie was Nope. I, I think that that was the one, the movie of the summer that just really uh, got me into the the reason for the season. If, if, you, if you understand what that means, I guess. Uh, so yeah, Nope is my number seven. Jordan Peele, he's, uh, he's on a roll. Nice. Yeah, I uh, would definitely echo that statement as far as it being the movie of the summer, and I will have a lot more to say about it later. Though um, I will say, kind of piggyback off what you're saying, I really love about this film. Like, it's very easy to compare, um, you know, what he's doing to different filmmakers. Like you just mentioned Spielberg. I, I remember in our review, I think we talked about like Carpenter. I, I think I mentioned yeah. Werner Herzog. Uh, as far as the not only the visuals but the themes of uh, what he's exploring here, but I feel like this is a film that. Only Jordan Peele can make. Exactly. And I that's feel exactly like, yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that's not giving enough. I feel like he's not getting enough credit for that uh, as far as like when people uh, evaluate and talk about the film. It just feels like uh, a filmmaker, as you mentioned, just really coming into his own in a major way, only continuing to expand his rise and challenge himself, uh, make films that really complement the big screen in a major way. And uh, yeah, I, I'm already kind of going jumping to the races as it were talk about the film so i'll hold off but yeah, yeah hold off because yeah, yeah. Who, who knows what's going to happen next yeah uh, hold I my horses Russian. as hold were. your horses yes yeah. <laughs> they might get swept up uh what is your number six movie of the year so number six for me is a film that we talked about fairly recently it's a film i've seen most recently on this list uh it's a film that i was definitely very excited about but i wasn't sure how i was going to feel about it it is guillermo del toro's pinocchio that's my number six. Is it really? It is. Let's tag team. Oh, this. man. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you want to go first or do you want me to go? Yeah, please. But you're, you're up. Yeah. I mean, 
look, I mean, we Pinocchio has been told however many times at this point. Hell, we had three Pinocchio movies that came out this year. Like, it's just, you know, it, it's a constant well for filmmakers and storytellers to, you know, use a story and, you know, tell it in a way that is supposed to be, you know, personal to them and, and explore this very classic fable in a way that should be very, uh, you know, uh, impression both to each storyteller but i feel like especially when we see a film like robert zemeckis's pinocchio just feels like it's kind of copying the the work of others and it just kind of makes you wonder like okay what is this director going to do that has been done before but i shouldn't have doubted guillermo del toro because he made a film that i i think stands as not only one of the uh you know better films of his filmography, but one of the best uh, Pinocchio movies that we've ever gotten. And a big part of that is because he finds a way to honor that mythos, but tell it in a very oddly original and moving way. And that's to not only really explore a story about a boy trying to find, you know, his humanity, but a character trying to find out what humanity means and how, why it matters, why he feels he needs to be, among the people and what does it mean to really be alive in that sense, but also like what it means to find creativity in times of oppression. Obviously this film focuses a lot on fascism and uh, the second world war and uh, the, this desire to like make meaningful and lasting things when everything is tragic and terrible and then the world's falling apart. And I just found it to be quite touching, obviously very beautiful. The animation's gorgeous. I was very lucky to see it on the big screen. Uh, and also just, you know, just very spellbinding. It's like, you know, it has some delightful musical numbers. It's gotten some really fun voice performances from a stellar A-list cast. Uh, it's just, uh, and it also has some really fun set pieces that, you know, uh, will feel both fresh and familiar to anyone who's familiar to, with the story. And so, uh, yeah, it's a very easy film to gush about. It's a very easy film to be swept into. And it also is willing to be a lot more daring, provocative than other Pinocchio stories have been in the past, which is, I feel like something that every Pinocchio movie should be, but a lot of them aren't. So yeah, I love this movie. It's easily my favorite animated movie of the year. And uh, yeah, it's definitely one of my favorites from a director I already love, Guillermo del Toro. It's my favorite animated movie of the year as well. And I think for all the reasons you stated and then some, I think, you know, I didn't get to see this in the, in the theater, but uh, even just watching it at home and kind of experiencing it that way, I, I just, I was immediately taken in by this movie because you said it yourself. I mean, the originality is the key. I think it, it doesn't live in the shadow of the Disney version of Pinocchio at all. It, it is completely separate from that. And I think that's why it's worthy of being like the next great Pinocchio adaptation that people are going to grow up with and, and, and grow up with in a way where it's like, it's not even supposed to be, I think for young and little kids, but you know, they'll find it. And like, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll certainly get taken by a more mature interpretation of this kind of really you know, prototypical story. It's a story with so many themes inherent to the idea of growing up and dealing with death and loss that are tough things to talk about with, with kids, right? And by no means is this movie trying to be a parent or anything at all. It's just, it's a creative expression from Del Toro that doesn't make compromises on his imagination and the decisions he makes about, you know what, Jiminy Cricket's going to live inside of Pinocchio and we're going to, we're going to set this, uh, you know, this is Italian and we're going to set this in a totally different time period than Carlo Collodi's original series of novels here. And I think that that was a brilliant choice by Del Toro because it just showed that he looked at a story that has really aged, that it has been around for over a century and decided that he has a connection with it that's deep enough to put a really brave spin 
that is going to feel necessary and that is actually going to click with people. So that's what this movie is. It also has a, just a wonderful score. I mean, you already mentioned the visuals. The visuals are uh, impeccable. One of the best stop motion animated films I've seen in a bit. And uh, and, I, and I, I thought Wendell and Wilde was was nice enough. And I, I didn't love that movie. Uh, oh, I it's like not that. Henry Selleck's best. But I, I, th- I thought that that was also a very lovely film. But I think what we're getting with Pinocchio here is uh, much stronger in terms of the animation. And just in my opinion, uh, not that it's a competition necessarily. Both good films. No. People should check them out. And I mean, uh, and I mean, also a Netflix film. So yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, for as much as Netflix deserves a lot of crap for being uh, a company that makes very questionable and bad decisions a lot of the time, uh, I will give them credit where they deserve it, and that is yeah. that they continue to prop up and uh, release and distribute and produce uh, a lot of stop motion anime films, many of which I find to be quite wonderful. And one we didn't mention in addition to the two we already said is the house, which we uh, saw earlier in the year. So it's kind of easy to forget that came out this year, but another kind of a wonderful, bizarre stop motion film that stands is one of the best animated films of the year. I'm not my favorite, but um, I certainly am glad it exists. Uh, I'll say that. Um, But yeah, Guillermo del Toro, Pinocchio, del Toro's Pinocchio, that and and All Quiet on the Western Front uh, are the two Netflix movies that are on my list. And a good year for Netflix. I think that they did put out some good stuff this year, Um, stuff that didn't make my you know, my honorable mentions, uh, but uh, actually there is one other animated film on from Netflix that is in my honorable mentions and I'll mention it later. Uh, so yeah, glad, glad with what we got. Uh, actually there are, sorry, I forgot. There's one other one from honorable mentions that I'll, I'll say, but cause I keep forgetting it's a Netflix movie, but anyway, Will Ash, what is your number five of the year? Yeah. I was just looking to see if I had actually any other Netflix movies, not only on my list, but my uh, honorable mentions. And uh, I don't think I do. I think this is the only Netflix movie I put oh, wow. <laughs> uh, in my list. And that's not to say that the obvious, I agree with you that like they made a lot of uh, great, wonderful films. I think Wonder Woman Wild got very close to being in my honorable mentions. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, uh, you know, like I said, for as much as I am uh, ready and willing to give them a lot of crap, uh, they have certainly d- made some wonderful art in the process. <laughs> so, you know, kind of give, and give give and pull throughout their uh however long existence at this point uh but yeah so to answer your question my number five film is a movie you've already mentioned because it's on your list and it's a little bit higher on mine though i feel i share your uh enthusiasm and sentiment for it it is everything everywhere all at once uh the second film collab feature film collaboration between the daniels uh two directors that i've really grown to love because their previous film uh swiss army man was my favorite film of 2016 so i guess i went into this with maybe a little bit more expectations than others i feel like a lot of people were kind of blindsided by uh the quality of this film uh as well as maybe uh the uh appreciation that it's gotten with time though i mean even i have been kind of blown back by how big this movie has got it is wildly yeah. exceeded uh my expectations for how big this movie is going to get how big an a24 film could get how yeah. big uh a movie is going to be because like i remember when um the film came out i was just kind of like yeah i just hope that uh kiyo kwan you know who, who gives i think a tremendous performance in this film uh incredibly difficult but very moving performance i'm just like i just hope he like gets more opportunities from this and he might win the oscar for best supporting actor yes yeah, so he won best supporting for the critics choice and and i'll say real quick one, one of the reasons that my expectations were a little warped is because 
because the last movie we got from Daniel Scheinert, just him, was Death of Dick Long, which I just found to be kind of a big disappointment uh, for me personally. And yeah, I was, I guess this movie was on my radar, but I just, I guess I was like a little bit less enthused. Like I didn't have that Swiss Army Man high, you know, it had faded and weren't one off basically. I did enjoy Death of Dick Long, maybe a little bit more you, though I, I can't say I love that film either. But I, I did. I like it. I think it's a pretty good film. Uh, but in any case, uh, everything everywhere at once. I feel like it's a type of film that's hard to talk about right now because everyone everywhere has an opinion on this film and won't shut up about it. But, you know, not all of them have a podcast and I do. So let's talk about it. Uh, I feel like a lot has been said about, you know, the genre bending of the film, the wackiness of the film, the, the kind of assault on the senses that people talk about. But I feel like uh, more than anything, what should be celebrated is just the the personal emotionality of it. The fact that, you know, it is all these different things, but it's able to tell a very coherent moving character focused complicated story at the same time in a way that doesn't feel like a shortchanging that for style it, it never feels like style for substance for me at least uh and i think a lot of that has to do because we get a wonderful lead performance from michelle Yeoh, an actress who obviously has done tremendous work throughout her career uh but finally gets a showcase like this one to really demonstrate her talents her fortitude as a leading woman and also just the versatility that she can bring not only in terms of action scenes and comedic scenes, but dramatic scenes that often feature throughout the film. And uh, I felt like the the character dynamics, the complicated relationships that she felt and shared with uh, many of the characters in this film and their multitudes and their variations throughout the film uh, could have easily kind of crumbled, crumbled under the pressure of telling such a vast and complicated story, especially for such a limited budget. But I feel like this is one of the most shining examples of creativity that has come out this year. Obviously, it's uh, taking a lot of elements from other films. A lot's been said about the Matrix influence, as well as the Wong Kar Wai influence, and a lot of other filmmakers and films that uh, get you know attributed uh, and uh, stolen in this film. But I just think, above all else, it's a Daniel's effort. They they are tremendous about taking the, these very goofy and silly elements, but combining in a way that feels very heartfelt, very deeply affecting. And uh, yeah, you'll get scenes here where characters with hot dog fingers are giving moving eloquency, eloquent, you know, monologues. And uh, two rocks are having a heart-to-heart on some desert wasteland planet. And it's just, it's wonderful, it's silly, it's goofy, and I can see why it's not everyone's cup of tea. I don't know how I feel about it for a few years from now. All I know is that I'm living in the now, and I like this movie a lot. And it's one of my favorites for the year. And so I put it at number five for a list. Yeah, it's it's been one of my faves of the year all year. I, my estimation of it hasn't diminished at all. Yeah, and I think just one, one last thing about this movie. I mean, the thing that I really love about it the most probably is the fact that it is focusing on types of characters we just don't get to see in movies like this ever. You know, like, you know, the, a woman who is kind of like, you know, past middle age, who is, you know, a Chinese immigrant who runs a laundry and, you know, and it, like, we just never focus on characters like that. And like focusing on like her husband, who's, you know, a bit of like a, a, a loving but kind of hapless guy. And like, it's it just we're so used to movies that get budgets like this to be around like the, one of the Chris's you know, to be so geared around like a wish fulfillment mentality. And it was just so nice to see a movie like this breaking the barrier because people do want originality. They just want it when it's really good and the word of mouth can really pick it up. And that's what this was uh, for a ton of people. So I'm happy to see it succeed as much as it has. So yeah, that is uh, your number five. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, 
I think a lot of that also just comes down to, I mean, I, we've obviously seen films that deal with like working class characters, but I feel like with Daniel Kwan's uh, vision, it's it's not really just there for the sake of it. Like it's very deeply felt, it's very personal. And I feel like he never like thinks less of the characters for the struggles they're dealing with, you know, and also just having very sympathetic lens, but also recognizing the complexity of the characters and recognizing that, you know, this lead woman is like not always a great person that, you know, she's kind of the worst variation of herself, but that doesn't make her, you know, off or irredeemable it's just yeah it's very you know sentimental gooey film and i can see why it doesn't uh, appeal to everybody but yeah i definitely liked it a lot all right my number five is return to soul which uh, you already mentioned earlier this is the davy chu film and i just i hope I, i'm looking forward to you seeing it I, I don't know if you're gonna connect with it the same way i did but my, my number one thing about this movie is that it really captures, uh, similar to Worst Person in the World, it captures what it's like to be in your 20s, like during the 20 teens, and then going into your 30s in a way that I just think is so, it, it feels like a period piece set in the, in the now, you know? Like, it's a movie about uh, a woman who is, as I said, she's in her 20s and she's trying to like reconnect with her origins because she uh, was adopted when she was a baby and she grew up in France. So she goes to South Korea, Seoul to be specific, in order to kind of really just sort herself out. She, she wants to meet her biological parents, but clearly there's, there's something else that she kind of wants from this experience. And I think this movie speaks so much to like a type of wanderlust that a lot of people in our generation went through during this time period as, as we kind of like aged into this kind of like current era I just I just found this movie to be so touching and to be so wise in, in all of its saying, even though it's such a youthful movie at the same time. And, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, certainly like I didn't connect with everything in this movie, like very directly, you know, like I wasn't adopted. And I certainly, you know, I, I don't have that same connection of like returning somewhere that you've been, but you don't remember. But at the same time, I just I, I just found the movie to really like create empathy for that experience and such an approachable way you know like really capturing the most you know movie they say like movies should be like with the most important you know seven to ten days of your life this movie is like the most important seven to ten years of your life essentially and so i i, I really just really loved it i mean it really took me over and i walked away from it being like this is absolutely like one of those really essential films for like looking back on the 20 teens and how a certain group of people experienced them uh, myself included I, it really like uh, i really connected with this main character in a way that i wasn't expecting so that's return to soul i, I think people should definitely check it out once they get a chance, it's from Sony and uh, Sony Pictures Classics, and I don't think it's streaming anywhere, but yeah, if you can find a way to check it out, you absolutely should. I don't know if it's going to be hitting any kind of release at some point. I uh, I think it did hit limited already, but yeah, if you can check it out, I highly recommend. Nice. Yeah, this is, I think, the only one on your list I did not get a chance to see, unfortunately, and I really wanted to see it. Uh, just haven't had a chance. So we might be playing in the Pittsburgh area in March. I can't say with certainty, but I may know a thing or two that hasn't been announced yet. So, uh, all right, yeah. <laughs> so then, all right, what's uh, what's your number four? Well, actually, four we're already there. Film. We're already at four. Uh, it's a film that we've discussed in no small part, and a film that I'm sure you're going to have a lot to say later in this episode. Uh, it is San, or sorry, it's SS Rajamali's RRR. Rajamali. Uh, the, Rajamouli, sorry, Rajamouli's RRR. Uh, the runaway hit of the year, 
as far as uh, cinema is concerned, I'd have to say uh, a film that I feel like was on not a lot of people's radar, at least here in the States, uh, a movie that, you know, I kind of just heard about through genuine word of mouth, just people talking about it, being like, you kind of have to see this crazy three hour Hollywood epic. And I was like, sure, I'll give it a shot. Why, Why not? not? <laughs> and uh, it definitely uh, was for the better because, uh, I mean, you know, it's kind of similar to everything ever all at once. It is not only one. Which it came films. out around the same time as. Yeah. Which yeah, is we had amazing. A, I mean, I will say, I mean, for much as I've been criticizing the year as a whole, uh, as this list kind of colors, uh, I feel like we had a tremendous spring. <laughs> like March and April were just like tremendous for cinema, uh, at least as far as I saw. Sure. Um, but yeah, uh, RRR. Uh, like I said, not only one of the best films, but one of the most films of uh, the year. Uh, another film that just kind of just has a real why not attitude to cinema, just kind of blending everything in, doing a number of different things. Uh, you know, at any given moment, it's an action scene. It's a drama scene. It's a musical scene. You know, it, it's everything at any given moment, but it never loses sight of the clear central bromance at heart, which is very deeply felt, very lovely very melodramatic uh, in many respects, but also just very earnest and very sincere and very uh, rejoiceful. And it just has this great uh, cinematic excellence to it that, I mean, it just tech, it, you just see things in this movie that you just don't get to see in most films, especially in America. Uh, it, it just constantly fills you with joy and makes you wonder like what's going to happen next. Uh, it's just uh, a delight from beginning to end. And uh, there are a few films from this year that I have thought about more fondly than RRR. And uh, I imagine as the years recede, and I think back on 2022, this is going to be one of the films that sticks with me the most. Uh, I just had a great time with it. I'm so glad that I went in not knowing much of anything and got to experience this film with fresh and wondrous eyes. And I'm so glad I've been able to share this film with a lot of people. Certainly, I, I'm, I'm very grateful that I got you to see the film. We got to talk about it. And uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a continuous delight. And I'm very excited to see where his career goes next. It's hopefully going to continue to be great because I, I hope this opens a lot of opportunities for him. Another film that's similar to everything I wrote once uh wildly exceeded my expectations as far as like how big it's gotten and uh, how wide its audience has been. But it's been so uh, it's been so great to see this movie grow and expand and become such a major runaway hit. Uh, yeah, I'm, I love it to pieces. I can't wait to watch it again. It's RR. I hope by now you listener have seen it, but if not, do yourself a favor. Watch it it's on Netflix. Have a good time. If you can see it in theaters, please do so. But just see it. It's good. Yeah, RRR, it's uh, certainly, a, you know, some people's movie of the summer, because a bunch of people did see it in the summertime, uh, either when it came out on Netflix or when uh, it was in like the like one day uh, theater yeah, the release. release. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah uh, that's why I kind of hesitated before. I was just like, is, is this a movie of the summer? Nope. Uh, anyway, you can, you can factor it in however you want. Um, but that is Will Ashton's number four. My number four is a movie that you already mentioned, Willis. We got another bit of overlap here, and that is the Banshees of Vinnie Sheeran. I uh, just, to me, they were. It, 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 it's not the funniest movie of the year. I think the funniest movie of the year was uh, for me the weird, the Al Yankovic story, which I'm still just. When are you going to watch it, Will Ashton? I just I never got know. around to seeing that one, unfortunately. But which uh, you know, that's you make your own choices. Sure. I'm not here to judge you, but. <clears throat> 
Yeah, because you were like, oh, I'm going to see it with my friends. And I was like, yeah, fr- I wonder if they actually exist. But uh, The Banshees of Sharon, also a very funny movie. Uh, and also, just as you already mentioned, I just, uh, just a movie just dripping with uh, such sharp, but also like weirdly plainly spoken, almost banal commentary about friendship in such a different way. I think that's like the the connecting tissue of all the movies I have on my list is like, they're doing familiar things. They're about familiar things, but they're just doing these things in just better ways than before, you know, movie to movie. That's what these are to me, you know, like the, the big multiverse movie of the year for me, wasn't Dr. Strange. It was everything everywhere all at once. Right. And like the big, you know, action war epic was this Netflix German film, you know, and, and in this case, Banshees of Inishirian, a, a movie that is really just about two guys who, you know, one of them doesn't like him anymore. And, and that's the plot. Like just one of those like aha moments I had in the cinema where I was just like, yes. Okay. I've seen a lot of movies so far in my life. I'm still pretty young relatively. There are still movies that can surprise me in just the best ways. And that's what this movie was. And this movie, I think just also, it has actually has a good ending. I think that's another thing that a lot of the movies on my list, like they actually have really great, terrific endings, almost all of them. And uh, for Banshees, I mean, this movie I walked out of just being like, I I cannot wait to see it again. I'm very happy that Martin McDonough kind of you know redeemed himself as you already alluded to before, uh, because just uh, it's just one of those things too where I I definitely watched this movie without seeing the trailer. I'm glad I didn't because there are certain things the trailer get into. I was like, oh, I'm so glad that that was preserved for me. Like I was able to watch the movie and not know that that was coming. So, Banshees of Inisherin great movie. Uh, I don't know how many awards it's going to win. It's just one of those like consensus things that like a lot of people really like it, but it's probably not going to get like a ton hmm. of attention everywhere. So I mean, that said, really great. You never know. I mean, never know. Yeah. as we get closer into the awards race, it, it seems like it has a decent chance of winning uh, best actor, maybe best picture. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't see that, but I, I definitely see other things. Um, so sure. Yeah. A screenplay well, seems like a potential given, but uh, but who knows? Who knows? I I, I can't say. I just yeah. it, it, anybody's game. So, uh, what about your number three, Will Ashton? What, what do you got? Oh, my number three pick. Uh, well, I guess vaguely similar to my fourth pick. It is three letters, all capital, ending with the letter R. Can you guess what it is, John? Is it tar? You better believe it. It's Todd Fields. That's my tar. number three. Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we we're way more like aligned this year than we have been in a while. Uh, I'm kind of scared. But. I don't know. I feel like we both had the same number six last year too, right? Then we both have pick last year, but we didn't have like two. I don't think we had two movies that were in the same spot. Especially I feel like we did, list. and this much overlap. I I feel like we did, but I, I don't know. I can't say for certain. Mm-hmm. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say I don't think so, but we'll find out. Mm, uh, but yeah, Tar. Know. Yeah, Tar. Why don't you go ahead? Me? I just went. You go. It's well, no, but you, I, oh, I went first when we both went together last time, so why don't you go ahead? Because I just talked about the Banishes of Any All right, fine, fine, <laughs> fine. Uh, Tar, uh, a film that I very much debated, was this the number one film of the year? So I would have broken up the, I guess, the semi-monotony of what we were going with here. But, uh, I mean, if it's not my favorite film of the year, it's certainly one of the films I've thought about the most this year. Uh, like I said, it's Todd Field's first film in 16 years. Uh, a film that I guess he wrote uh, in a few short months during the pandemic, and it explains not uh, the quality because it's tremendously dense as a screenplay. It's wonderfully well packed with quality uh, uh, 
material and characterization and minute details that really pay off uh, as you really immerse yourself in the film. Uh, but it just feels very present to them now. It's, it's obviously a film that's been called the quote-unquote cancel culture film. I think that uh, severely uh, undersells the film, though it obviously deals with a character, in this case a fictitious conductor, uh, Lydia Tarr, who uh, is just kind of the conductor of her own downfall, though she doesn't really seem to know it. And it's about control. It's about class cautiousness. It's about uh, the delusion of power, uh, as well as the non-delusions of power and the uh, different things that people will do to kind of maintain uh, a perceived status, but also just the people that kind of elevate these uh, figures to greatness. And even if they don't recognize it and can kind of lose sight of it because of their ego and their, uh, you know, well-noted talent, uh, they can kind of become follies to uh, the dangers that they just don't really see or they do see, but just fail to really take uh, notice of. Uh, yeah, it's just one of the more uh, commanding, exhilarating films of the year. Uh, and it's not to say, you know, kind of similar to other films on this list. Like, it's not... Uh, overbearing you with style. It's a lot more mature. It's a lot more kind of grounded uh, in a in a realistic sense, but it also has like a lot of wonderful supernatural qualities to it as well. It, it does have this sort of uh, grander sense of not really knowing the the bigger stakes that are happening, the things that are kind of crumbling in your life that you don't really understand, but know are going to lead to great tragedy. And it's just a, a very involving, very uh, commanding, like I said, film. And it's anchored by a, another tremendously performance by Kate Blanchett, who is always great, but is uh, even greater than she sometimes is here. I don't know. Uh, yeah, she's, I mean, she has a great, great shot at yeah. winning her next Oscar. So. Yeah, very well could. Very yeah. well could. Um, yeah, you know, I, I echo pretty much everything you said there because I, I just love this movie's focus. I love that, like, it, it just settles on one. It has a lot of ideas and themes, but, like, it settles on, like, one main one that everything else flows out of. And it finds a way to just really nail down its message without sticking to the formula of movie making. And it's still as entertaining as it is. I, I That's what I think is, like, the most thrilling thing about it for me. Because it's something that I think Todd Field kind of did with Little Children as well. Because he's taken something that, like, how many times have we seen a movie about infidelity, right? But he does it, like, he sets it up like a, a kettle about to boil over. Like, just gets you so invested by such of the minute details, like you said. For me, I mean, yes, I mean, Kate Blanchett anchors the movie and then some, but I mean, Nina Haas, Noemi, Noemi Merlant, uh, just coming in here, Sophie Cower, just with their performances that are like each like a different shade of like a reflection of who this character is and how she affects others. I, I think what I like about it is that it's not a cancel culture movie. I think it dismantles cancel culture and how it's perceived and this idea that, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely well that applies to you know people who have power and it kind of is elemental about that by choosing to have instead of like you know a, a just sort of a you know harvey weinstein type right like how many times have we seen the story told through like okay the person is like a, a man and he's abusing his power like we know how the patriarchy works and stuff right we've seen that kind of story done so many times and i think what's interesting about this one is like it's still telling that story it's still that cautionary tale but it's also doing it from it's, it's finding a way to do it with somebody who is like like it's getting outside of that intersectionality. It's like, it doesn't matter that she's a woman. It doesn't matter that she's a lesbian. Like what she's doing is wrong. And I think that that is, some people have taken that the wrong way to say that like it's Todd Field trying to like 
impugn those identities. It's like, no, no. What he's doing is he's showing like inherently, like you can have somebody really likable like Kate Blanchett. You can have somebody who like you, you can almost kind of root for because of like how great at this that she seems to be. But at the same time, you'll notice that throughout this entire movie, you don't really see her conducting that much. Right. And it all leads to a certain thing where like her talent is really off screen. And it's kind of like a thing that's sort of a given. And that's one of the like the really key things about it that really makes the whole movie come together for me is that it's all based on like what people say about her is where her power comes from. And like showing how that can be taken away because it was flimsy to begin with, that's what makes it to me a smarter cancel culture movie than I think a lot of people would give it credit for. So yeah, truly one of the years best films because I think it's the year's best screenplay. This is the screenplay for mm. me. Um yeah. because I just think that it's it's so tight and I, I wouldn't change a word personally. Yeah, it's a tremendous script. Yeah, I mean, it's that precision and the nuance together that I think really makes this film so tremendous. And yeah, for me, I mean, it's just coming off that opening scene in the film where we see the end credit or end credits that we normally would see at the end or the beginning. And then we have this long scene where we, it's like a montage of just all the different people that make Lydia Tarr the Lydia Tarr that we see. But we we can't get constantly get lip service to who Lydia Tarr is supposed to be. Like, who is this great EGOT-winning master? But we obviously see all the different people that are kind of making that persona and all the people who kind of paved the way for that greatness, who gave her her style, who wrote or print out her music who kind of made sure she got to the venue on time. And it's just like, yeah, it, it's a, it's a film that shows all these nuances, these complexities, the character, but also has a very clear focus is, you know, willing to explore the messiness, but has a very precise view of who this character is, how she should be viewed, but also willing to kind of recognize the humor and tragedy of that up to an ending. That is uh, probably the, maybe the, the ending of the year. So I, I do feel like the endings for the films I'm going to be mentioning later on this list uh, could ravel it. Uh, if you agree or disagree, I don't know. But I, uh, I basically yeah. agree. I mean, the ending is just I the smile on my face. Will could have lit up the entire like movie theater. Honestly, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, tremendous movie. Will definitely I think go down as you know one of the defining films of 2022. I'm glad it's on both of our top five list. Same, same. All right, Will. Now we're at our number two of the year. We're almost done. But what? yeah, what's your number two of 2022? So my number two film is a film that you have already mentioned, but it's a film that I could talk about constantly. It is uh, Jordan Peele's Nope. Uh, And this is one of the films that I feel like, you know, obviously I was very high on the film when we talked about it and I was high on it when I saw it. But it's one of the films that's grown on me more and more, I think, as the years progressed. I think, you know, we've already seen and established that Jordan Peele is, you know, truly one of the dynamic up and coming filmmakers of our time and that he's only continuing to hone his style, be more brave, be more provocative, be more in tune with what he wants to do as a storyteller, what stories he wants to tell, the perspectives he wants wants to share on the silver screen uh, with the capabilities and the um, opportunities have been given to him. But I think with this film, what's really kind of stuck with me is just the density of what he's able to say was a story that, you know, on the surface is, you know, it's another sort of, uh, you know, alien story where we have characters kind of similar to Close Encounters or uh, it, not an alien film, but um Jaws, where you get kind of a a band of characters uh, coming together to kind of stop this unstoppable force. But more than that, it's a film that uh, is exploring the business of Hollywood in general. And it's 
compared to other films that we've gotten this year, uh, including many films that I love that celebrate the grandness of the movie machine and, and recognizes that, you know, it's not always great. There are complexities to it. There are hardships to be found. Uh, but man, there's nothing like the movies. I feel like this movie is lo- very much able to capture that complexity in a way that doesn't shortchange either the beauty or the terror of it. And certainly, uh, as we see with the Gordy segments of the film, uh, you see really just the inherent tragedy of not only uh, what's like for a lot of these uh, animals that work uh, against their will for the most part in this industry, as well as younger children who, you know, kind of get caught up in in the grandeur and the expectations of their peers, but also just uh, the beauty that comes from like when you make something as a collaborative unit and you, you work all day and you kind of slave over an image and it, it just, you know, you, you're able to find something against all odds and you make something truly momentous. And it, it's the type of film that as much as I do like Babylon, I feel like this movie is doing what it's doing tenfold. <laughs> it's just, and it's able to do it in a lot more original and daring and uh, ultimately meaningful way. And so, yeah, I, I just think it's uh, definitely one of the best films of the year. It, it could very well be Jordan Peele's best film, though it's hard to say. That's kind of the beauty of his early filmography is that like, I think all three films could very easily, you could make a great argument for why they're the best film he's made so far. And I think he has several great films ahead of him. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's very easy to put this film in my top three. It's a film that, you know, I've very much debated whether it's my number one film of the year. And uh, yeah, and maybe it is. I don't know. I, I'll have to figure that out later on. But for now, I put it number two. It just warms my soul and then some for you to be as big of a fan of Nope as you are, because, yeah, it just it just makes me happy. Um, what a movie, what a picture. All right. My number two is after sun, which is the film debut of Charlotte Wells. I think it's the only film debut debut I have on my list, if I'm not mistaken. Um, because I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure is every a other director. I don't think happening was a debut, but I'd have to double check on no, that. I think that was a debut as was well. It? I thought return to soul was a debut. For David Chu? I thought, no, I'm pretty sure David Chu has done a couple other movies. Um, okay. Maybe I just I'm, misspoke. I, maybe I did. I, I'll, I'll, I'll fact check that later, but for now. Maybe I'll look it up while you're talking. Uh, okay. <laughs> Please do. I, for some reason, I thought David Chu had done something else, but anyway, but he had done two other movies, but I could be mistaken. Uh, um, but Charlotte Wells, uh, who made this movie set in the 90s, uh, deeply personal movie, uh, a movie that was on my radar as soon as I found out that Paul Mezcal uh, was the lead in it. And Paul Mescal, who, you know, we saw last year in The Lost Daughter uh, with, uh, he was one of the, not one of the main characters, but he was in there with Olivia Coleman. And I just remember being like, ah, oh, his time is coming. I think Paul Mescal is just, he is on the up and up. Like, I think that he is on the verge of like breaking out. Him and uh, Daisy Edgar Jones had great ears. She she was, of course, in Where the Crawdads Sing and Fresh. Uh, the, these two actors, I should mention, were the, the two leads in Normal People, a show that really affected me. And I just think that his performer is just such a such a powerhouse of like understated uh, melancholy and masculinity that I think is going to really serve him well as he finds even more terrific roles for himself. He, to me, feels like the, it kind of reminds me of like when Jesse Buckley was kind of breaking out with movies like Wild Rose. This, this to me feels like his Wild Rose in a lot of ways. Um, did you finish your fact check? I see the look on your face of like, I'm going to make John embarrassed. No, I, I misspoke. Yeah. uh, Audrey, the one, uh, yeah. is that 
Yeah, she uh, had made one film prior to this, and then um, the director of Return to Soul had made two other films before. Oh, so. oh interesting. Wow. Yeah, so I yeah. misspoke. I apologize. <laughs> so yeah, this is my only debut of, uh, on the list, but I mean, it, a truly incredible debut. I, I mean, I just, I can't believe that this is her first film, honestly, because it, it's a movie that is a essentially like a montage of this memory that this young girl has from the 90s. Uh, the young version of herself is played by Frankie Corio, and she's 11 years old, and she's with her dad on this like trip to this resort just for a short amount of time, and she's kind of reflecting on what you know happened uh, on these you know sweet summer days, basically. And her trying to figure out who her father was, and I, I won't get into detail here, but there are certain things about her father that she's trying to figure out. And a lot of ways the audience is too. There's a scene in this movie where Under Pressure gets stripped away in its uh, acoustics, and it it's a rave scene that I think is like one of like the like great like movie moments of our time. Like I, I just genuinely was like so taken aback by it. I had, I literally, cause I was watching it on a screener. I stopped it and I rewatched it five times because it was just such a, such a land in terms of like how it was constructed. And that's why I'm just like this, this woman, Charlotte Wells is just a, a bit of a visionary filmmaker we have on our hands, I think. Uh, so I hope what she does after this is going to be uh, better and better because uh, she has the potential to become one of her, one of the true greats. And so after sun is my number two movie, a uh, truly, truly terrific. And, and uh, surprisingly my favorite a 24 movie of the year. Uh, so above, um, Everything Everywhere All at Once was the other one. Uh, I don't think I had any other A24 movies on my top 10. Nope, I don't. So yeah, those are the ones. But uh, yeah, I think you saw it, right? I did, yeah. I think it's quite good. If there's one film from 2022 I wish I could have watched a second time to kind of confirm my feelings on it, it would have been After Sun. It's definitely mm-hmm. a film I like. I feel like I've grown to like it more with time. I it, I didn't like it as much to put it in my top 10. I still feel like I don't know if the, the style of it does more of a benefit or a disservice to the story it's telling. Uh, that's why I would need to watch it again. Uh, but I definitely echo your sentiments about uh, what an accomplished debut it is and uh, what great performances we get from our two leads. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely well worth watching. And uh, I, I wish I shared your sentiment for the film, not only because... Um, I, I feel like I'll grow like it with a second view and kind of similar to um, the souvenir. Uh, that was a film I feel like I liked the first time, but loved the second. I could see myself having a very similar reaction to this film. Uh, but uh, my big shame for this year, uh, as far as my list is concerned, is that uh, not by choice, it just kind of happens. Way I have no women directors on my top 10 list, which I, I very much am bummed about. Obviously, I saw a lot of films from women and not binary filmmakers that uh, I really enjoyed a good bit, and they're in my honorable mentions, but none of them that uh, were in my top 10, I feel pretty uh, pretty shameful about that, to be just, quite honest. Just two so, for me, yeah, after yeah. Sun and Happening. So, yeah, definitely a shame for both of us. Yeah, we're uh not being good allies this time no we're we're pretty sexist is what yeah yeah we're just uh we're just two pigs that's what we are um but okay well those are our number twos before we say our number ones let's do our honorable mentions will what do you got well let's see what what i got uh let's see so my honorable mentions we already mentioned uh happening we already mentioned uh after sun not the happening (laughs) not the that's a different one no did i say the happening I thought you did. And I was just like, I got to like a big I flashback. I, already, you know, I already mentioned happening. Uh, and I mentioned uh, 
After Sun. Uh, the other ones on my list, uh, let's see, Utama. Uh, that was a film I saw at Sundance. Probably one Just of my barely missed my honorable mentions, yeah. like that and Prey and Fire yeah. Island, like so close. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just saw uh, Prey, actually, today, just before yeah. we record this uh, conversation. Good pretty good film. I don't know if I'd put in my honorable mentions, but pretty good film. Uh, but Utsuma, a film I loved, and I really got close to putting that in my top ten. I just barely, I delineated between that and Benediction, but I ultimately cited on uh, Benediction, but very much well worth watching. Uh, on the count of three, a uh, film I didn't see yeah. last year, but came out last year, finally. Uh you know, actually, I did actually I did see on the count of three, and I think it's the reason I didn't like it as much the second time. I did still like it a lot. I didn't like it as much the um, the second time I watched it, though. Uh, if I had, uh, I probably would have been in my top ten. I, the tremendous debut from uh, Gerard Carmichael, uh, the way that movie definitely handles uh, dark subject matter in a way that is very funny but doesn't feel like it's mocking the subject matter is uh, tremendous and has two great lead performances in that as well. Yeah, uh, I didn't crime? include it because yeah. I it's a twenty twenty one movie for me. Oh, la di da, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I get. It. I mean, I saw in twenty twenty one. I I don't blame you, but it technically came out in twenty twenty two. So I think it deserves to be on this list instead. Ooh la la. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, a film you and I disagree about, um, but I think a film that has uh, very much uh, tickled its way into my top 15 for the year, another film that's similar to Nope, has only grown in my estimation with time, is uh, David Cronenberg's Crimes of the Future, oh. which is a film that uh, I just I think it's it's one of his you know most exceptional works in some time it's a film that i think is very personal very meaningful uh it, it's it's a film that i i think you know if you ask me to make my top 10 in two or three years this farewell could be my top 10 i think it's definitely what we're seeing uh documentary below armageddon time on my all big list Oh, okay. I, I was. That's actually the second film I was going to uh, mention next <laughs> in this list. Another film that's grown with me in my estimation is Armageddon oh. Time. But the film, uh, another film that you, John, for some reason, keep shortchanging. It's way more <laughs> complex, way more moving than uh, you give it credit. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, a film I don't think you've seen, but it was at Sundance, so I just saw it most recently uh, on Hulu, where it just premiered uh, on streaming. It is Riotsville, USA? I don't know if you've seen that documentary, no, John. No, I haven't. But uh, quite good. Uh, Easily one of my favorite documentaries of the year. Actually, probably my favorite hmm. documentary of the year, if you don't count uh, this much, I know to be true. Uh, Mad I mean, God? I probably would. But, yeah. yeah. Mad God, uh, Phil Tibbetts' uh, decades-long passion project. Uh, incredible movie. I, I don't think John was quite as keen on it, but that's you know another film that he can be wrong about. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> a film that John didn't watch uh, at all, but he should. <laughs> Uh, is Jackass Forever, uh, a film I uh, quite enjoyed. One of the most joyous theater experiences okay. I had, 2022, quite easily. Uh, John is depriving himself of that experience for reasons that still I don't really understand. Um, let's see. After Yang, uh, you know, I think a, a film I think we can at least agree on in this respect. Uh, I think a film that you, I, from what I can recall, liked a good bit. Uh, Funny Pages, Decision to Leave, EO, We're All Going to the World's Fair, Barbarian, Corsage, Living, Turning Red, The Fallout, Catherine Called Birdie, Avatar, The Way of Water, Top Gun Maverick, Kimmy, Bad Axe, 3,000 Years of Longing, The Pink Cloud, and Duel. Uh, 
And mm. uh, another one I want to mention, it would be in my honorable mention, but I want to give it a caveat that I do know at least some of the people involved with this. So maybe I'm a little biased, but a film, uh, an indie film that I really enjoyed and I think deserves uh, a wider platform is Poser. I don't know if you've seen that film or not, John. Nope. Uh, a very funny but also uh, just very engaging uh, takedown slash examination slash character study of the uh, Ohio music indie scene. Uh, a film that I really enjoyed a good bit and hope more people get a chance to see. And an honorary honorary mention, because technically this film came out in 2021, but it didn't get a wide theatrical release until well into the summer of 2022, at least as far as my hometown of Pittsburgh is concerned, is Memoria. A film I really liked. I know, I guess you weren't as crazy about that one, John, but uh, really affected me a good bit. Uh, I, if, if, I don't know what year really qualifies for. Um, if it was this year, it would be higher on my honorable mentions list. But since it's technically a 2021 release, I'll give it an honorary, honorable mention. All right, those are your honorary mention, honorable mentions, honorary, however you want to say it. Uh, mine I'll just go through here real quick. I mean, you mentioned a few of them already. Weird, the Al Yankovic story I already mentioned. Uh, just, I think the year's best comedy. Just the funniest movie of the year. Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery. That was one of the other Netflix ones I forgot about. And uh, a movie that I really deeply enjoyed. Avatar The Way of Water, as you already mentioned. Just a, a just a cinematic achievement in almost every way. Just not certain elements of the story. Aftershock, uh, one of my favorite documentaries. Uh, one that's really stuck with me, too. And, oh, I, I gotta yeah. finish that one. Yeah, I that one I hope you do. Uh, crapped out on me on the link uh, for South by. I wanted to finish that. Is that on Hulu right now? I don't know where it is right now, but I'm okay. sure you can find it somewhere. So yeah. I want to definitely finish should. Yeah. Uh, Top Gun Maverick, as you mentioned, yeah, one of my favorite theater experiences of the year for sure. Uh, the other Netflix movie was Apollo Ten and a Half: A Space Age Childhood. I just love that movie. I just uh, nothing movie. but a grin on my face throughout. Yeah. Fun movie. Uh, I love when Richard Linklater is in his laid back mode and and in his animated mood, movie mode. Uh, and just Jack Black is weirdly good at narrating it. Like, I, I don't know. It's just one of those things I just think really everything just kind of clicked in ways that I don't think it even probably should have. So, Why? at least for me. Why do you say weirdly good at narrating? It just, it just wouldn't be my first choice for narrating a movie like this. You know, like a movie set in the 60s. It just it was like, huh. Uh, All right. But it works. It works. Yeah. Uh, the Woman King. Uh, probably, probably my favorite blockbuster of the year. I think like in terms of like a popcorn movie that is just like an action epic, it's not the deepest story in the world, but like, it's just kind of going for that mood. I think the woman King just succeeds in every way, uh, for along those lines, uh, nanny, uh, a movie that I just like, I, again, it's just one of those movies, like it's doing familiar stuff in unfamiliar ways. I think the way it blends like the supernatural, with this like really gripping drama about a woman trying to get back to her son. Um, but like is stuck being a nanny in America. It was just like, it was just killer. Uh, Benediction, which, you know, for some reason, Will thinks that I'm just a big old meanie about who knows. Um, Great movie. Which, yeah. I mean, I echoed a lot of what you said. It's very good. I just, I, uh, terrific performances, a terrific story, a, a very in, 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 intriguing story. Really, really easy to stick through. Really easy to sit through the whole thing. Really, uh, and then also Marcel the Shell with shoes on. Just a lovely movie. Another great A twenty four. And I wasn't even the biggest fan of like the YouTube video, honestly. But I think the movie just really succeeded in, in bringing all that to a, a fun new place. And Did you yeah. say YouTube video? YouTube video, right? Oh, YouTube. 
Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, what What are you talking about? Yes, YouTube videos. YouTube. Yeah, YouTube. Uh, a the, website. The origins, you, yeah. You should check it out sometime. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll have to look into it. <laughs> After Yang, as you already mentioned, uh, just lovely film. One of the better Sundance movies, I thought. Uh, my favorite documentary of the year, uh, Fire of Love. I, I absolutely love that movie. I just... What a terrific documentary. Oh, yeah. Just just everything they chose to base the story around, the archival footage, uh, Miranda July's narration. I just, oh, I, yeah. I have such a love affair with the, that documentary. Yeah, that just almost made it into my honorable mentions. Got very, very close. Duel, as you mentioned already. I, I just think Riley Stearns is just killing it. And uh, I just love seeing Karen Gillan and Aaron Paul really just like finding these really fun roles and, and doing something so different and original too with this kind of story. I just it definitely like, you know, we didn't get a Yorgos Anthem most movie this year, but we did get Duel. So we got some kind of approximating it. Uh, and then Decision and, to uh, Leave, which you also mentioned. And yeah. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, we we're going to maybe get two. Yorgos Lanthimos movies this year. So what a year we may have Correct. ahead of us. Yeah. Uh, Decision to Leave, as you already mentioned, and I just, poof, that movie has really stuck with me. It, yeah, really hard, say, it was really hard to not have it in my top 10, honestly. I, yeah, I honestly thought it was, go- it was going to be in your top 10. So close. I, I yeah. genuinely, like, it, it was right there and then just happening. Just I, I, I just had to, like, I had to make the choice. And then my last one is Turning Red. Uh, great Pixar movie. My second favorite animated movie of the year. Uh, great year for animation. Uh, despite what some people named Lash and say. But uh, those are my honorable mentions, and I'm sticking by them. Wait, I so. didn't say this year was a bad year for animation. I said last year was a not great nah, year for You animation. say all kinds of things. I can't keep up. You're misquote. I, I had, <laughs> like, what, like three animated movies on my, like, end of the year or honorable Who mentions? Knows? Who's keeping count? Not me. Uh, uh, but okay, well. <laughs> at least two. So, Oh, no, three, three. Yeah, because I had uh, Pinocchio on my list, and then... I had Mad God and uh, Returning Red in my honorable mentions. Yeah, so three. Yeah, I had three as well. So there you go. There you go. Quit giving me crap for it. <laughs> um, I'm referencing another conversation I think we had. But anyway, Will Ash, your number one movie of 2022. The time has come. I'm doing the drum roll. You just can't hear it because it's disruptive. Yeah. Let's go. My number one film of the year is a film that uh, you and I don't exactly see eye to eye on. And that's fine because I love it just as much for the both of us. It is Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. Uh, you know, the chance for one of our great storytellers to tell the story of how he became a storyteller. And uh, I guess some people, uh, not, you know, not uh, designate anyone in this podcast, found it to be a little self-aggrandizing, not quite as uh, fulfilling as maybe his, some of his other films with dinosaurs and aliens and sharks and all that. But... <laughs> Uh, and that's not to say that those films uh, are less worthy. Obviously, some of those are, uh, you know, among the best mo- best movies ever made. Uh, but the Fablemans, I, I guess for me, I was just really curious to see, like, okay, you know, we've seen, you know, the legacy of Spielberg grow and grow. Like everyone's going to acknowledge uh, that he's one of our great populist filmmakers. Uh, what is it about his life that's really going to tackle something that we haven't seen before? And I think it, it is, uh, you know. Despite what John might say, a very personal, very honest, and very exploratory and cathartic film. Uh, it feels like it, it is has that you know Spielbergian quality that everyone expects from a film like this. It, it has all the precision camera work, all the quick editing, all the sharp lines of dialogue from a really accomplished, well written script. But it's also very exploratory. It, it, it 
tackles something in a very therapeutic and meaningful way. And it, it is able to tackle the legacy of Spielberg in a way that feels like it's tackling tricky stuff, especially in the third act, where it really kind of questions, like, what is it about Spielberg that makes Spielberg? And more importantly, is Spielberg, by being Spielberg, able to, uh, you know, be a person that he wants to be? Is he divorcing himself from reality or choosing even to divorce himself from reality by being the filmmaker that he is, using his innate gift to kind of uh, be a lesser person in the process? Or in some respects, take that gift and use it uh, in ways that may not be fully beneficial, but gives the people what they want. And I feel like these complications and these tackling of very, you know, hard to answer questions in a way that feels very well-rounded as a package just makes this very moving, beautiful, messy, but gorgeous film uh, that I have thought about a lot and really enjoy and love. Uh, It's just, uh, yeah, it's just tremendous stuff. Uh, You know, I mean, is it better than Nope? Is it better than Tar? I don't know. It's just the film that when I was watching, I was like, this is the film of the year, if there is a film of this year. And uh, yeah, and it ends, I think, on a note perfect scene that uh, you know brings a smile on my face, even just thinking about it now. So uh, yeah, that's my film for the year. It's Spielberg's The Fablemans. Uh, you know, what a film, what a filmmaker, what a story, what a list. That's me. That's my number one pick. I will say this. It's definitely Spielberg's best movie in a while. I I certainly had a fun time with it. It's it's not one of my favorites of the year, but it's up there. You know, I have it up there with, uh, as I said before, movies that I liked, like The Menu and Black Panther and The Northman. It's uh, it's quite okay. good. You know, yeah, it reminds I mean, me of like, it's like that movie. It's like, I, you know, I, like I have this friend who I don't know super well, but like I know what he's up to. Like every he's super popular, the most popular guy in school. And I go over to his house for the first time and I get to know his parents and I'm just like, whoa, there goes the mystique. You know, that's kind of like the impression I got with this movie when I watched it. Um, but at the same time, I really respect him for making this movie and go in there, you know, and I, I think that there were, there are certainly some moments in this movie that, uh, one of them involving like him, uh, seeing himself in a mirror that I'm just like, Oh gosh, you're just going for it, dude. Like, okay, yeah. I'm, I'm ready. I, I buckled my, this seat in the theater has no seat belt, but I need one. Yeah. And that's what happened. Yeah. yeah great stuff. Yeah. And I know we disagree on Seth Rogen, but that's fine. Anyway. Sure. My number one movie of the year is Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Wow, you've really turned around on that one. <laughs> I had to do it. Because I when you when you didn't say Puss in Boots, Last Wish for your honorable mentions, I was like, wait, what? Like how hey. how is this movie is loved by so many people? But I, I just don't, you know, Look, sorry, it's not really my number one. Uh, I like anyway. the film. But yeah, I mean, I, I think some of the conversation around the film is like, it's fairly ludicrous as far <laughs> as like how people are responding to it. Like I host a Shrek podcast. and I'm even like, calm down. Power to them, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, honestly, I mean, if they're getting that much out of it, good for them. That's, that's nice uh, to hear. That's yeah. for sure. Um, yeah. But no, my real number one movie of the year is RRR, Rise, War, Revolt. I knew it was coming. Listeners clocked that ages ago. And I did struggle with this. I, I genuinely, for me, it was between this and After Sun. I, I struggled. I was like, which one is it going to be? And I came down to RRR yeah. because I truly think this is one of the greatest uh, action movies ever made. I think that it's it's easily one of the best of the 21st century. It's up there with Mad Max Fury Road. It's up there with The Raid and many other of the like. And I think what makes it such a successful action movie is the fact that I think it's it's kind of leaning into a different era of action filmmaking when things could be fun. Playing with physics, 
was a little bit more flexible. Not everything had to be so cut and dry and plain. And that's what I really, really love about this movie. It's just so absurd, but in all the best ways. It's absurd without like, you know, we had the Jean-Claude Van Damme movies, right? We had Arnold Schwarzenegger and those were absurd too. But this one also has like a beating heart to it that I think really just like got under my skin where it really like just faced me down with its entire op- like soap opera storytelling in a way that I- it just won me over so fast. I, I think like the the story about this friendship, the story uh, like like the flashback scenes in this, like it really just feels like a true modern epic in, in ways that I think shouldn't be understated. I mean, I said earlier that I think Nope is like. I said Woman King was like one of, like in terms of blockbusters, uh, Woman King was probably my favorite of like kind of like the normal blockbuster, right? But like movies like RRR, movies like Nope, these aren't normal blockbusters to me. They're elevated blockbusters. Just kidding. I know people hate it when you say stuff like that, but no, I think RRR is just like it's it's an international phenomenon. I think in some ways it's it reminds me of like when Parasite came along, and here was this movie with subtitles that is so good that even people who have weird hangups about subtitles also get sucked into it and and happily so. And so I'm just glad that RRR is that movie too. We got to talk about it on the show, one of our most popular episodes of the year in terms of podcast downloads, and I think that's that speaks to how this movie has such a uh, an enthusiastic and warm following. Um, I'm sure there's some toxicity there, but I've seen nothing but, you know, just outpouring of love and support for SS Roger Mooley and, and what he's up to. And uh, obviously, like our listeners, certainly like the ones who check this movie out or were happy that we checked this out, I think um, certainly, you know, uh, can echo some of that experience too of just being in this movie theater for over three hours and for me not feeling it me being disappointed when it ended and similar to you recommending it to so many people and just finding out how much they loved it too i mean it was just for me it's the definitive 2022 movie the one i'll keep coming back to over and over again for good reasons so that is rrr my number one of the year and yeah for some reason you had it lower on the list i guess uh i guess you just (laughs) didn't like it that much Oh man. No, hell yeah, man. I'm so glad this movie, uh, you know, exceeded any expectations I would have had for it and become, you know, not only one of our favorite films of the year, but one of the films, one of the best films of the year for many people. Like I've, I mean, this has to be on like most people's best year lists, I think that I've seen it's, you know, just speaks that, you know, commutative power of it. Just, you know, I think everyone can just really appreciate the gumption of it, the, the mad energy of it, but also, like you said, that beating heart that really kind of grounds the film enough to not just be like a silly spectacle, be something that has a deep emotional resonance, but has everything that you just want to see in a movie and just things you've never seen in a movie before. And it's just like, yeah. Uh, what a wonderful experience. I'm really glad that you and I got a chance to talk about it, at least early on for the national release of the film. And a lot of people, you know, checked out the show because of our conversation. Uh, and if you are still listening to the show and you join us from that conversation, thanks for, you know, listening and all that. Uh, yeah, it's been, you know, very joyous. And I just can't wait to see how far it goes and it's uh, continued appreciation for years to come. All right. And those are our favorite movies of the year. I, I just checked and we, we did a great job, Will. We, this was a bit shorter, uh, a lot shorter than we have in the past. Good job, Will Ashen. Good job, me. And I think part of that is because we just found a way to uh, be concise. And also we had so much overlap. <laughs> so uh, it's good to have. Good to know. Um, but yeah, that's it. Uh, so without further ado, next week, what are we talking about, Will Ashen? I forget. I can't keep up. Well, if I have my way, 
we're going to be talking <laughs> about a little micro indie film called Skinamarink. That is another film that's kind of become the dinky dink skinamarinky uh, a phenomenon. I- Love a genuine you. phenomenon, at least in the horror community. I don't know if that's the case on your timeline uh, and the people you follow, but it's I'm seeing love for left and yeah. sure. I mean, it's a little movie that could, and uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like it is our duty to talk about because I have a lot to say about it. I'm really excited and curious to hear what you think about it and what you have to say about it. Uh, I think it's going to produce a uh, very good conversation, whether it's with you or with someone else, because I don't know uh, what your availability is going to be leading up to Sundance. But uh, yeah, I hope you get a chance to check it out and hope we get the chance to talk about it on next week's episode. All right. Until then, though, thank you so much for listening. From the Internet, California, I'm John Negroni. And from the Internet, Pennsylvania, I'm Washington. See you next time.